Well, good morning. Good morning. So we start today, um, this is December 1st, and as we were talking about, we're going to, uh, on Wednesday night, start going through the Advent guide that we did a couple of years ago. Um, this is going to be a rare opportunity, but, uh, you know, you can take it for what it is. Um, I actually can encourage you to go on Facebook for the Zion Rest page, and you can download, there's a link, you can download the guide, okay? It's the easiest way I could figure out how to to distribute it. It was large, um, and was going to be several hundred dollars to get it printed, so um, I just figured that this way would be the easiest. So, this is the first time and maybe the last time that I'll ever tell you in church to get on Facebook, um, go to the Zion Rest page, click the link, download the guide, and that way you can start Today, as today is the first day of Advent, first day of December, and we'll go through up until December 24th, um, talking about the birth of Jesus. The scripture reading for um, this first week that you can be looking at, one of them is Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7, um, and that's where we have the uh, famous phrase that we all probably know, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end in the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I think that's kind of fitting in one way to bring that up. We're starting... Uh, the Advent day on the same day that we're starting uh, the discussion of Jesus's last day. Okay, um, we're going to begin this morning in Matthew chapter 26, and these last three chapters are the last hours of Jesus Christ. Literally, from kind of this moment, it can be assumed in chapter 26 that 24 hours later. Jesus will be crucified in 24 hours from his Passover meal, 24 hours from the day that he sets out to say the Passover is coming, we're going to see Jesus crucified. So we're getting into the last days. It actually begins technically on the day as we remember if we were talking about the timeline that we have set out here um, that John kind of gives us insight into, um, and then following through, you know, we have this kind of six-day course that has happened. Um, the first day, and again, we've, we've talked about this, and I, you know, I, I've, you come to this point, I think, I'm not saying that I'm at, at some point of philosophical ascendancy in life, but you really do come to a point where there's sometimes where you just make the recognition that People will believe certain things, and there are certain things that you can believe even within the church, and you see this over and over again, um, that are important in one sense, but not important enough to really butt heads and go bickering over, okay? Um, one of those examples that we can look at that we see, and, and is probably the most infamous one, is, you know, there's this long-standing debate at communion time of whether you use one cup or you use little cups for individuals. You know, that's like an age-old debate. And actually, you know, it's funny that that goes way beyond the way beyond just our own little denomination. There's plenty of denominations that have that same battle. 
Again, there's people who feel one way about it. There's people who feel another way about it. You know what? In the big scheme of things, it does not make a bit of difference. Okay. And I really feel like this timeline leaning up to Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection is another one of those. There's, again, it's my personal opinion. They may not, it may be a big deal to you and you may think differently. And that's okay with me. If you want to have a debate about it, we can. I don't know how fruitful it will be. Um, But in the end, I don't think it matters as much as the substance of the discussion, okay, of what we're talking about here. We know that there were six days that this took took into account, okay? Whether you want to start that way back on a Wednesday or whether you want to start that on a Friday, it was six days that Jesus started this process, this road to his death, okay? Um, six days that he accomplished all these things that we were talking about for the last five chapters, really. And it's a very, I think we should at least take note, a very solemn set of events that's going on here. You know, we're talking about, and there's a lot of content in those chapters. I think all of us would agree that when we spend like, you know, 11 days, uh, 11 sermons in like two chapters, you know, it, 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 is packed with timing and with information and with um, with lots of things to reflect on. Jesus gives a lot of information in that. Jesus gives some all the chapters we just went through about the end times. You know, we were looking at these prophecies for four different Sundays. We were looking at prophecies of the end times for us and for the Jewish people and for Jerusalem and all these big, heavy things we were looking at. Well, now in chapters 26 and 27, we're going to be looking at the end days of Jesus in his earthly ministry here and in his physical, unregenerate, unglorified body. Okay, so we started off, as we said, six days before the Passover, as it's phrased in John, that that was when Jesus was sitting down to dinner in Bethany with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And we are known, we know that at that day that was, Jesus says that he arrived at Bethany and was eating with these people six days before the Passover. We then have, as we've gone through the timeline, the next day, which would be five days before the Passover, as the triumphal entry, where Jesus rides in on the on the full of an ass and he goes into the Jerusalem and he, you know, does his thing. Four days, the next day, Jesus returns to teach in the temple, and that's the day that he curses the fig tree. That's Matthew 21, verses 18 through 46. Here we get a little bit kind of questioning when the next day was, because there's no, that, that phrase that was used, and the next day, and on the next day, and on the next day, it wasn't used after that. But you have Jesus from chapters 22 through 25 teaching, and that's all that stuff we've just talked about. And that could have all happened on that same day, the day that he returned and cursed the fig tree, and then he started teaching. Or it's very possible that he split it up, and then on day three, or three days till the Passover, he was still teaching all those things he taught from 23 to 25. We do have a mention in Luke's account 
in Luke 21, verse 37, and it says, Every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people would come to him in the temple to hear him. So there's this possibility that even on that third day that he had gone out, didn't get all that teaching taught in one day, uh, just like we didn't get all that teaching taught in one day. He didn't get all that teaching taught in one day, and he spread it out to the third day. Well, now we come to this fourth day or two days from the Passover. Two days from the Passover. And again, it just depends on how you're reckoning this. I think this is a Tuesday um, that he's on. But two days from the Passover, we are at chapter 26. And that's where we'll start. Remember that in chapter that in two days on the Passover, okay, also that's called here the first day of unleavened bread. You're going to have the Passover feast celebrated. You're going to have the actual sacrifice of the lamb. You're going to have the eating with the disciples. Okay. And then after the eating with the disciples in that morning slash really, really, really late night, you have Jesus being taken by Judas and the chief priests taken for the trial sunrise the next day you have him delivered to the gentiles and then you have him crucified so you get this there's a lot that happens in that last 24 hours okay so we're two days prior to this at this point okay so here it says in chapter 26 and it came to pass when jesus had finished all these sayings he said to his disciples You know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people unto the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. But they said, Not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people." Now, when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, there came to him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. But when the disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. When Jesus understood it, he said to them, Why trouble you the woman? For she has wrought a good work upon me. For you have the poor always with you, but me you have not always. For in that she has poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Verily I say to you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this that this woman hath done be told for her a memorial. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests and said to them, What will you give me? And I will deliver unto you Jesus. And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say to him, The master says, My time is at hand, I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Now when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve, and as they did eat, he said, Verily I say to you, the one of you shall betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and began every one of them to say to him, Lord, is it I? 
And he answered and said, He that dips his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had never been born. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? And he said to him, Thou hast said. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink you all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. So I wanted to read that whole account just so that we kind of get a framework of what we're looking at. I know that at this point, everybody has read that before. And I understand at this point that we've probably read it multiple times and that we have a good picture as to what's going on here. I do want us to take a moment because if you think about it, we read that section of scripture a lot of times just at communion and just to kind of give a mindset and a setting of the scene for us while we are taking the communion. But I want to kind of give the picture and the timing of all this. And I want us to really kind of transplant our minds and our thoughts today into this time and place. Okay? Thinking about what's going on, considering what's going on. As we're going to enter in this month and talk about Advent and consider about the birth of Jesus and consider about his life and what was promised, how prophecy was fulfilled, everything that he promised to achieve and overcome and do and set right. As we kind of enter into Advent and celebrate that, I want us at this moment and for the rest of these chapters to start, let's get our mind in that mindset as well. Think about what's going on. Again, this is why I get into the, there's things that are worthy of arguing about and there's things that are not. Because you're going to sit there and argue about which day of the week this falls on and you're going to completely miss the fact that that wasn't the point of this discussion. What's the point of this discussion is the death of Jesus Christ. That he is entering into willfully. And along that way, as he's going through this, there's a lot of stuff that happens. There's a lot of things, there's themes that are going on in this story. As you're reading this, consider it. I mean, there are, there are themes of anticipation and hope. Remember that the Passover time was one that you marked with this kind of readiness and preparedness. Remember, they were commanded to eat this meal with their sandals on and their robes on, holding their staffs. Why? Because it was this idea, you're going to be marching out of your slavery on this day. So they were supposed to be all ready to go. And then as they talked about it, they were supposed to be remembering, you know, Jesus um, would, would, would kind of replace this for them in such a way. But you think about, though, what this was meaning to the Jews. The Jews were commanded over and over again that every year you were to observe this Passover in perpetuity, no matter your circumstances or where you are. And all those times you were supposed to be reflecting back on the great salvation that the Lord had provided for you as an Israelite. So they were going through all of this every Every year, and it was supposed to be a memorial for them to look back and go, man, you remember when God delivered us in this mighty and fantastic way. You remember how we all sat down that night and we were all eating this weird meal, okay, of 
of bitter herbs and of unleavened bread. And we had to prepare for all this. And then we had to kill this lamb and we were eating it. And we all had our shoes on and we all had our staffs. And we didn't know what was going to come next. We didn't know what was going to happen after this. We had an anticipation, but a fear because we don't know what's going on. Okay. God didn't reveal to them what would happen. He didn't tell them, oh, by the way, eat all this. And here's what's going to happen. Pharaoh's going to repent. The people are going to give you all your stuff. You're going to go out of here. I mean, it's, it was, there's, there's just kind of low level of, of fear that's going on. I mean, things had been ratcheting up during all of these plagues because, you know, the Israelites are getting spared all this stuff. Everybody else in the populace is getting destroyed. And you've got to just imagine at some point the people are going to go, look, at some point the Egyptians are going to get really tired of us. The Egyptians are going to start killing us just like they threw our babies into the Nile. They're going to just, I think they're going to get fed up with it to the point they're going to kill us all. I mean, we're all confined to this one little area and it wouldn't be very hard for them just to march on through. We don't have weapons. We don't have tanks. We don't have any kind of anything. They could just come in and slay us. So you got to imagine that this night was preparing. They started doing all these weird things they had never done before. And... You got to imagine at some point the Jews are going, how is this going to work out? And then God moved in the way that he moved. And all of a sudden they're marching out of Egypt, probably looking back going, is this really happening? Like, are, are we, are we leaving? Like, are we, and look, they gave us all their stuff. Like, how did this happen? What happened here? How did we get to this point? And then after that, it's the Red Sea. And then after that, it's going into sign. I mean, you've got all these scenes where God is just continually coming out and pouring out his power and his majesty in front of them. And it's all this stuff that was unexpected and they didn't know how it was going to go down. And God told them over and over again, remember this day. Go back and remember it. Because your default is going to be to get down the road, forget about me, live the lives that I have blessed you to live without any recognition of what I've done for you. So he said, every year I want you to remember this. Every year I want you to come back to this moment. Every year I want you to come back to that moment where you were sitting down to eat a dinner and didn't know how the next five, six, seven, eight hours were going to go. You were sitting down to a dinner... You were ready, you were prepared, but you weren't really certain what was coming next. So here he's sitting down in that same scene. Set your mind in that same scene. They're sitting down, they're going to be sitting down to a dinner. Jesus is going to tell them a lot of things that, again, that they're going to be going, I'm not really sure how the next 24 hours are going to go, okay? You know, he's telling them here two days before the Passover, remember... This is the fourth time I've told you now. Remember that on the Passover, I'm going to be taken. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. This was the fourth time and the final time. Remember, remember, remember. This is what's going to happen on the Passover. Now, that's two days before. You got to imagine the next two days went a little bit tense. You know how that after two days is the feast of the Passover and the Son of Man is betrayed. Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people into the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. And they consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, there's some big takeaways that you need to grab from this section of Scripture. And I know some of this, a lot of times, we just kind of 
you know, just run right over it. But as you have well seen <laughs> in three years, I have not run over a lot of stuff out of each of these chapters, okay? So you can just buckle up and prepare that for the next three chapters, that's how it's going to be too. So here though, they, you do take some big stuff away from this. It helps you with the timing and the setting and the place of why Jesus was taken when and where he was, Okay. Number one, the big takeaway that you see and something that does kind of help to frame up some things, a big kind of understanding that needs to be grasped and that you need to you need to kind of get with all this because it does explain a lot and it helps also with the timing stuff. Okay, this is a Greek manuscript. Okay. This is a Greek manuscript written by people at the time who were in Roman occupation, okay, and very much were under a Roman authority, okay? So these people, everything that's going on with all this, there is a romanization, okay, of timing and how they're describing things, all right? That is important to grab, and we're going to see that in just a second, but that's where you start seeing this idea of the feast day, okay? Well, there's this this conundrum you would get into how does that tie to the old testament and what jesus what god was telling the jerusalem uh, telling the israelites about passover remember passover you were to keep the lamb into your house on the 14th day you were to sacrifice it or you were to kill it at the evening of the 14th day you were then to eat it okay at night all right and then that also began the first day of unleavened bread because you're having your meal that is unleavened, all right? Remember the whole Passover thing was you had to sweep the leaven out of your house for all those days and prepare yourself. And then at nighttime, you were going to eat this meal with the lamb and the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs. And that was the first day that started the seven days then that you ate unleavened bread, okay? But there's no description in there of a feast day, all right? There's not a feast day that's tied with that. The Passover meal was had at night, okay? But the idea, this idea of the feast day and what they're talking about here of being taken on the feast day. We didn't want to take him on the feast day unless there would be an uproar. And later, when Pilate actually is standing before the people, he says, It is my custom to release unto you one of your prisoners on the feast day. Okay, So there's this, this adjustment, so to speak. And, and part of it is because when the Roman culture would come in, a lot of times what they would do to keep the peace and allow for, you know, some, some uh, kind of swindling of the people that they, you know, were occupying and had under their thumb, is they did a really good job of kind of, you know, pulling in your stuff, your religion into our religion, and let's kind of make it all a little more homogenized, and let's not have all this bickering. You can celebrate your stuff. In fact, we'll make it something that the entire government will do. Well, the feast day was the taking of the Passover feast, okay, which was at night, but now we're having a day of it. They can't take him during the day, on the feast day, because there'd be an uproar. People would rebel. People would rebel against the fact that you were taking someone and arresting them on the feast day. All right? So that's why we see that, number one, it's not on the day that he's talking about celebrating the Passover, because, hey, you couldn't really eat the Passover if you took and beat and, you know, potentially murdered somebody. That would be a little bit uncouth according to the Mosaic law. But the next day, which was the feast day, also, they weren't going to go out in public and snatch Jesus out of the temple. 
So that's why they ended up doing it in the middle of the night. A little more convenient that way. After we've eaten the Passover, after we've taken part of the holy ritual and law, then kind of in that late night, early morning time when nobody's out, we're going to go and we're going to steal Jesus and we're going to take him and try him and condemn him. And then in the morning, before anyone's really gotten together, we're going to give him to Pilate and say, this man's a criminal. And then we're going to let Pilate deal with him on the feast day. That way it's out of our hands. But you're going to see this kind of interchanging. When they say the days, they're talking about morning to morning days like we would think of. Okay, They're not coming from a Jewish perspective at this point. It's not written from a Jewish perspective according to the old Jewish ideas we understand of what evening and morning was as far as days. Okay, So it is a little flipped. And you do have to take that into consideration because it's a Romanized culture writing who's going to be writing and living their days from day to day, not evening to evening. Okay, So that is one of the big takeaways that you grab from this is there's this kind of discussion of a feast day and why they couldn't take him on that. And it's kind of showing you that there's a little bit of a cultural thing that's going on here that was different from when you're reading about this in Exodus. Okay. So then he says that they consulted to take him by subtlety. And like we said, that's where they came together and said, you know what? We're going to take him in the middle of the night and that will kind of make everything okay. Now, Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Now, again, we have kind of come full circle. He started this six days ago there at Bethany. And here we go. We're back at Bethany. Okay. And we're in the house of Simon the leper who, interestingly enough, there's not a lot of insight into who Simon the leper is, okay? They don't really talk about him a lot. He's kind of mentioned here. It's what I find interesting is that he is referred to as Simon the leper, okay? Which, number one, nobody would have been having dinner at Simon the leper's house unless he was a former leper, okay? Um, so not, none of the disciples of them are going to be hanging out with Simon the leper, okay? Uh, Simon the leper wouldn't even be in a house in Bethany, okay? He would be out on the outskirts. What, though, is interesting to consider and is somewhat subjective and speculative, but is something that I think could make a, a little bit of a jump. They do talk about this in the commentaries and things, even though it's not affirmed 100%. If you remember, not too many days before this, Jesus is leaving out of a city and 10 lepers are there and he heals one and one of them or heals all of them. One of them comes back and worships him. Okay. So it is potentially assumed that that one leper is Simon the leper. Okay. Who now could live in a house. Okay. Because he's no longer a leper who could be dwelling inside the city limits and all the apostles would have been glad to sit down and eat dinner with them and there wouldn't have been that much of a hubbub about it. But what I think is fantastic about that is if that is the case, look how this man is tied back into the story. Look how it comes back in. You know, we remarked about how amazing that story was to begin with, that you had 10 people who were all lepers, who Jesus heals. Nine of them said, thank you, I'll take what you give me and I'll go live my life now. One of them returned and said, I can't believe you did this for me. Praise you for all that you've done. Glory be to God. You know, all these things and the worship that went on there, showing the true heart of this guy. Okay. And now you have Jesus sitting back down with him, eating dinner in his house. Isn't that kind of a, a testimony? Isn't that kind of a picture into our lives, hopefully? 
that you have how Jesus has done a marvelous work in our lives, hopefully our response is then to return to Jesus and glorify his name. And then further down the road, we see Jesus sitting down with us eating dinner. I mean, that's that's kind of the hopefully the gospel picture that we all share. You know, I'm not trying to read too much into that, but I think it's kind of crazy that he's back at Simon the leper's house. So that in and of itself is an amazing testimony to kind of this this new life thing that's going on around Jesus. How Jesus can step into this man's life, heal him, change him, turn around his life. And now he's continuing to dwell with him as they go forward. But the other amazing event that happens here is this woman who anoints Jesus for his burial. Now, again, you have all three of the Gospels talking about this at this point, okay? That Jesus, two days before, or if we have fast-forwarded now, you know, on the day of, either way, but two days before, okay, you have Jesus at Bethany, and this woman comes and anoints him, all right? John's Gospel, and you remember we talked about Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic Gospels. Those three kind of are are along the same lines, okay? John's stands out as different, and that's not necessarily wrong it's just john's gospel is different it is a different account of the gospel than the three others who wrote theirs okay john's takes a little bit of a different angle on it okay it starts differently um all you got to do is read chapter one of john and you can see john was coming from a john perspective okay but john's gospel has this anointing taking place actually on day one six days before the Passover in the house at Bethany. And interestingly enough, these synoptic gospels don't mention the name of this woman. John ascribes it to Mary, as in Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Now, again, it's hard to know exactly who and where and what and what's going on. Maybe there were two anointings. Maybe there's just this one and John put it then, but it was really here. Who knows? Okay, not a big deal. I do think it's interesting that John names it as Mary, and I do think that would be interesting if that's who it is here in chapter 6 that is doing this. But the scene and the picture that we get is that Jesus is sitting down in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, and here comes this woman, presumably Mary, who comes and breaks this spike nerd over him, which was a, a little vial thing, okay? Not vial, as in that's vial, but as a vial, V-I-A-L, okay? little container that contained some very pungent smelling stuff, all right? We're not going to say that this was essential oils, but it could have been. Maybe he's like, you know, breaking some cinnamon or peppermint oil or lavender. Who knows? Any of the essential oils people could probably tell you. But she brings this alabaster box, this spike nerd as it's described, of ointment as, as it's given in other, in other descriptions. And she breaks this over Jesus' head. And it says that it poured over him as he was sitting at meat. And the fragrance would fill the room. All right. Now, what's kind of, again, impactful about this moment? And Jesus even makes mention of it. She is doing this for my death. Now, a lot of times you could argue like, well, how does she know that he's about to die? How does she know, you know, could she really be doing that for his death? Was that the purpose? Was there some other hidden purpose behind it? We have another 
you know, account of a woman coming and doing this and then wiping Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair. And so you have these, these anointing moments, all right? If it is Mary, well, then Mary would have heard all the other times that Jesus said, hey, by the way, I'm going to my death. In fact, when he came and sat down with Mary and Martha and Lazarus in Bethany six days before, he had told him, guys, I'm going to my death. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be taken and I'm going to be crucified. He opened up here and said, hey, you know that after two days, I'm going to the Passover and dying. So she would have been aware of this potentially. The other thing is she would have also potentially remembered the conversation Jesus had about Lazarus. Remember that I am the resurrection. So she would have already kind of had some some guidance as far as what was going to happen. What's important for us to grab out of this is not necessarily who it was, even though we can speculate about that and we can come up with some conclusions, or exactly why. But noticing the scene that is set itself. Here you have this woman who humbly, desirously, tearfully did this action to her Savior. In amongst this, you have, as it says, the disciples, which again, you go over to other accounts in, in John in particular and others. He'll say it was actually Judas, which, you know, fits perfectly. That Judas was the one that stood up and said, why did she do this? What a waste. That thing's worth like $300. Doesn't, he, doesn't she know? We could have taken that and we could have given it to the poor. In John's account, I think it makes mention of the fact that Judas was not saying this because he actually desired to care for the poor. He was saying it because he was the one, he was the treasurer of the organization. Um, so he held on to the bag. So it was like, hey, we could have sold that 300 bucks, and then I could have gotten my cut and this would have all been great. So there's no doubt or misgivings about Judas's heart and Judas's desire in this moment. There was not some kind of overflowing philanthropic, you know, thing towards all the poor people in the world. Okay. He had his own internal interior <laughs> negative emotions that were guiding this. But there is more to the point than just that. Okay. Jesus understood what was going on here and said, why do you trouble this woman for the good work that she has done to me? For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me with you. For in that she has poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. And I say to you that wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this that the woman has done be told as a memorial of her. There is something really, really big going on in this moment. There are a lot of things that have gone on leading up to this point. There have been a lot of fantastic and memorable moments that have happened as we have gone through these last six days, correct? There have been a lot of things that we've talked about. A lot of moments and a lot of things that you could look at. And, and let alone that, let's just talk about even though I'm pretty sure nobody can remember going back three years ago. But there have been a lot of moments that we have covered, right? A lot of really crazy, amazing moments that have happened in the life of Jesus. Yet for whatever reason, he singles this moment out to say that wherever my gospel will be preached... This will also be preached as a memorial for her. That means that this little action here has kind of taken on a new level of meaning and precedence. 
I have always been astounded by this verse of Scripture. I, it has always just blown my mind. I mean, I, to be honest with you, for, for a long time and maybe even up till now, I don't really fully get it. I don't understand why this is such a big deal. Why this out of all the other moments, the thousands of times and everything that we look at, all the other moments that we think of when we talk about preaching the gospel. Okay, There's so many moments we come to. So many things that are impactful. There's people whose whole lives and ministry have been managed around the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, that's what kind of I've been on for three years. That's kind of what has framed my mind in ministry over the last three years was that sermon and living like Jesus told us to live and going through what he told us to do and all these things. But you have the feeding of the 5,000. You have the raising of Lazarus. You've got all these moments that will go along that are so often mentioned. How often do we go back to this moment? Yet this is the moment Jesus said this will be preached wherever my gospel goes as a memorial to her. Now, again, if this is Mary, then we're talking about Mary, a memorial for Mary here. Not Mary Magdalene, but Mary and not Mary, the mother of Jesus. But this other Mary, there's a lot of Marys. Mary was a very common name. I was trying to think of it kind of like when everybody was named Emma. You know, it's just like everybody, everybody was on Mary this year. Okay. But here you have this testimony for her of what she had done. You say, well, all she did was, you know, break a box over his head. She, you know, lathered him up with some essential oils. I mean, that's all, that's all she did. A little frankincense. But there is a lot of meaning in what she did. There's the meaning that Jesus gives right out that she has anointed me for my burial. Now, we know, as again, we have read the story over and over again, and as we get to in in the next two chapters, we know what happened with Jesus' burial. He was buried. He was buried in haste. There wasn't the necessary prep time because you were on the day of preparation, so the Sabbath was drawing nigh, so you had to get him in and get him shut because if you started trying to do too much stuff, it ran late into the evening, you technically would have gone into the Jewish Sabbath day and you would have been in violation of work on the Sabbath day. So they had to be hurried about it, right? Had to shove him in that tomb, lock things up. Can't take too much preparation time. The hour is nigh. So they didn't have that time to prepare his body like they normally would have. That's why we see the scene the next day after, okay, on Sunday before it rose, we saw how they went in and Mary and the others were going in carrying all the stuff to prepare his body. Because it had to be done. That was the Jewish custom, and that's not just a Jewish custom. I mean, there's a lot of Middle Eastern and, and the cultures over there, they had like a preparation thing for the bodies. Okay? So here, though, you see that scene. They were going to do the work that they didn't get to do the day of his burial, which would have been the normal time to do it. Here, though, Mary, as we're going to you know, assume it is, is doing something that you've got to imagine was purposeful. You know, I can't imagine that this was an accidental spur of the moment and she didn't know what she was doing. I think, and again, it may be my speculation, but I think what you gain from this is that out of all the people sitting at this table, Mary was the one who actually got it. She was the one who actually listened to Jesus talk all these days, listened to him when he said, 
hey, guess what? I'm going to go be killed because none of the others really got it. All the disciples, all the apostles are running around, even going back to when he was first here six days ago. He's saying, hey, guys, I'm going to Jerusalem to be killed. And they're like, so what's for dinner? They don't say anything about it. Even Jesus in the Passover meal is talking to them saying, this guy's going to betray me. Betray you for what? And then he says, I'm going to go and be crucified. And Peter's like, no, you're not. Absolutely not. And I won't deny you. I would never deny you. And Jesus is like, guys, this is, this is how this is going to go down. And you're all going to be scattered. Well, no, we won't. What are you talking about? Scattered from what? My death. I'm going to die. And you all are going to run. Oh, not me. I wouldn't do that. And you're not going to die. Who would say, what are you talking about, Jesus? This is a, let's not talk about that anymore. That's bad dinner talk. We're not going to discuss that. So that when the time came, guess what? They did all scatter. You had John as the only one hanging out at the cross with the women. I just want to make sure I make that really clear. If you want to see what the church originally was based off of was some really awesome, faithful women. Because the men were a bunch of cowards. The, the women are the ones that were there. The women were the ones that were faithful. The women were the ones that were believing when the men were so scared for the lives that decided to run away. It was the women who were the first one to the tomb. The men were all sitting back going, well, now what do we do? Our kingdom is gone. Our power is gone. Our, 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 our moment with the Messiah is gone. What are we going to do? And oh, no, they may come for us too. And the women were like, you know what? My Savior died. And no one prepared his body. They were the only ones concerned about it. The other ones were too concerned about their own self-preservation. It was the women who were concerned about the Savior. It was Mary at the tomb who was saying, What have you done with my Savior's body? If you'll just tell me where he is, I'm going to go find him so that I can give him the proper burial he deserves. While the men were back drinking tea and wondering whether they were going to die that day. So let there be no questions about it. These are some awesome women. And I think that the case here with Mary is another case of that. Out of all of these great men that were sitting there, it was the woman Mary who got it. It was the woman Mary who did the work. It was the woman Mary who observed what was going to happen to her Savior and said, you're not going to die without being properly prepared. So she anointed him in an act of glorious worship, honor, and recognition of who he was and what he was about to do. She was anticipating his death that he had told them he was going to go to do. Remember, six days before this, he had made his statement, I'm going to die, and it's not just that I'm going to die, but I'm going to be resurrected. I don't think it's coincidence that she's here preparing him for his death and she was there to prepare him at his resurrection. Maybe she doubted it a little bit. Maybe she didn't know exactly how it was going to work out. And when she got there and saw the tomb empty, she did have a moment where she was like, oh no, they've taken him away. But she was still there. 
She went looking for him. So that's why I think Jesus says, this woman's going to be talked about wherever my gospel is preached. There's also woven into that, that beautiful promise that we were talking about from chapter 23, when he said that the gospel would be preached to all nations and then the end would come. You have him here again foretelling it's not ending the day after tomorrow. This gospel is still going to be preached in all the world. And wherever it's preached, the testimony of what Mary has done here will be preached along with it. Wherever my gospel is preached in the whole world forever till it ends, this message will be preached along with it. I think that's a really phenomenal statement. What's important to grab out of this, though, too, is you see the the back and forth about religion versus relationship that we have been talking about in this. Notice how the people were like Judas and probably the others along with him too at some point were making the point like, well, I mean, but you could have sold this and you could have given it to the poor and think about all the poor people you would have taken care of. Is that wrong? Is taking care of the poor wrong? No, I think we've gone through that too. I think pretty much we have come away in three years that Jesus said we are to love our neighbors, which means we take care of our neighbors who are poor, our neighbors who are refugees, our neighbors who are widows, um, our neighbors who are unborn, whatever it may be. All the neighbors that we are commanded to take care of, I think we can establish that is fact and that is precedence. We We haven't lost that. So, yeah, that's a good work. There is an argument to be made. Yeah, you could take money and you could give it to the poor and help them. That's true. That is a good and righteous thing. Jesus isn't saying here, oh, the poor are always going to be there. You're never going to be able to get people to quit being poor. Ergo, there's no need to take care of them. Jesus is actually making a profound statement. There will always be poor. Which means your work will never be done. There will always be poor for you to care for. You're never going to get to the point where you can sit back and go... Well, all the good has been done. And now I can ride out this gravy train till we all go to glory because everything's been taken care of. Okay. All the good has been done. All the poor have been removed. Everything is hunky dory. And now I can just sit back and enjoy the grace of God and have nothing else to do. No, he says, uh, I hate to break it to you. There's always going to be poor. Maybe it's not just the poor in your neighborhood. Maybe it's poor in your city. Maybe it's poor in the city down the road. Maybe it's poor in places in Africa and Asia. And There's always going to be poor. You're always commanded to take care of them. You never get off that hook. Okay? But in this scene, in this moment, what you have set up between them is a difference in just religion versus relationship. What Jesus was chastising them for was obviously multi-layered. Okay? It's not just that it was about, you know, the act that, yes, it is a good, a gooder work. It's a gooder work to anoint me than it is to take care of the poor. That's not what he's talking about. He might be pointedly addressing the issue of Judas's heart and his wicked, you know, sinful, thieving self. But I think more of what he is kind of making the argument for in this is recognizing the superior entity in the room. Recognizing the superior entity in the room. There is obviously good to be done. And we are commanded to do that good. 
but that good cannot stand outside of relationship with Jesus Christ or else it's not for anything. The reason why we do good is because of the relationship we have with Jesus Christ and to give him honor. We don't do it on our own and we don't do it to stand on our own merits. We are commanded to do it. We're commanded by Jesus to do it. And therefore we do it because of Jesus. Okay. That's the only way we could do it. He's the one that's made us able to do it. So the good in and of itself does not stand on its own. Because then you come back to the question, well, is it good to do good works, but outside of loving and being in relationship with Jesus Christ? And I think what you see, as he's already covered on a couple of occasions, people will come up and say, well, Lord, Lord, have we not done all these things in your name? Have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not done all these good works in your name? And what did Jesus say? I never knew you. We don't have a relationship. Sure, go do all those good works. Who are they for and why? What was their end game and their purpose? So here he says, recognize the superior entity in the room. Recognize what's going on here. I am the central focus. Jesus is looking at them saying, guys, you, you, you're missing me. You're just doing this religious thing. You're just trying to continue on or even create this new religious thing. You're worried about this kingdom that you think you're going to carve a niche out in. And you're so focused on all this stuff that is in the natural sphere that you want to be a part of. He says, and you're missing the superior entity in the room. You're sitting out at the table eating dinner with the creator of the universe. A day or two before he's going to die and be absent from you. And you're worried more about the religious actions than the relationship that you have with me here. Stop with the religious actions. Quit worrying about those things at this moment and just take a breath and enjoy dinner with your Savior. That's the kind of relationship stuff that is important for us to grasp. Because what will happen is this continuum, this kind of slide, okay? If we start getting in the mindset that it's just about doing the stuff, preserving the stuff continuing with the stuff, then guess what? The stuff become the idol and Jesus goes away. And you just continue to slide until eventually you crash land into legalism and you feel really good about yourself, but really, really bad about Jesus. That's how that goes. You say, oh, but look at all the good works I'm doing. Yeah, but, but where's Jesus in it? Our ministry and our... Our witness to other people isn't, you can do a lot of good stuff, so get out there and do it. It's, Jesus did a lot of good stuff for me, therefore I do good, a lot of good stuff for you. I mean, that's, that should be our witness, right? That's what we talk about. We don't go into it saying, well, I'm part of a really good social organization, and they've given me a good framework for my life, and therefore I'm going to live my life according to the 10 articles of the Good Peoples of America Club. That's not what we witness about. Well, I read this great self-help book from Oprah. And she talked about how affirming my life is if I do X, Y, Z. I guess you could say 
you read a really great self-help book from Joel Osteen that didn't have Jesus in it either. But you, you, there's a lot of there's a lot of religion out there. There's a lot of religion in the church that is devoid of Jesus. That's a lot of do this good stuff. It'll make you feel good about yourself. But ultimately, there's no submission. There's no humbling yourself before Jesus. There's no giving your life to Jesus. There's no following Jesus in his commandments. It's just do these good things and feel better about yourself. And you can keep doing that and be perfect at it. And you can slide right on into legalism. And at the end of the day, come to the conclusion that you've done enough good stuff that you really feel like Jesus should owe you something. Instead, there is the humble, submissive, honoring worship of Jesus first, and then everything else follows after. That's what we see the difference in Mary and Judas in this situation. Judas's heart was one of wickedness, of evil, of thievery. We have that explained for us. Even with all that, he's sitting down with Jesus and he's more worried about the religious works he can continue to do. And at some point, I would feel like he'd be lumped in there right with all the other Pharisees and everyone else going, Oh, but Jesus, wasn't I one of your apostles? Didn't I do good things? Didn't you give me the ability to cast out demons and to take up serpents? And didn't I hold the coins? And didn't I give to the poor? And didn't I do all these things? Didn't I do all these things for you, Jesus, in your name? Lots of religious works, lots of religious action. And then you have Mary on the other side. Who instead of doing the good religious works of giving that money to the poor and all those things. I mean, instead of all that, which is again, we said that's not bad things. We're not, this is not some kind of argument that it's like, okay, all the good things for the people are out the window. If you just have a really good relationship with Jesus and make sure that's good, that's all that matters. Jesus' answer is, why is it not both? You tithe and mint and cumin, but you ignore the way your matters of the law, justice and mercy. It's not that you neglect the one and do the other. It's why not both? You should have done the one and not forgotten to do the others. Jesus is saying that the relationship with him is first and all the other stuff will come after. But you can't separate them. Mary here, though, out of her wonderful heart, sees the superior entity in the room. She recognizes what he's there for and what he's about to do. And so instead of worrying about all the precedents and instead of worrying about all the tradition and worried about all the consequences and worried about all that other stuff that's now present in the room, and we see that because of their response, instead of worrying about all of that stuff, she just does what she knows is right in her heart to do. She just does what she has a heart for, which is to love and worship her Savior. And I don't think as you look forward past that, her actions give any idea of fake religiosity. Her actions here, her actions in the future, her actions going forward to the death of Christ and his resurrection and her resurrection day testimony, all that stuff comes back to her faithful heart for her Savior bearing out Actions that are seen. And hopefully that's our heart too. 
as her memorial is mentioned, we don't just mention her to say, at a boy, well, at a girl, I guess, at a girl, Mary, way to go. You really nailed it in that whole anointing of Jesus thing. Good job. That's not why her name and her actions is brought up in memorial. She's memorialized to remind us about the relationship. Her heart in that moment. She's grieving over the impending loss of her friend and savior that's in her that's that's been sitting at her house, that's been eating dinner with her. Remember, this is the same Mary that's down at the feet of Jesus listening to him six days ago when Martha's scolding her. Why aren't you about doing the work? Why aren't you working? Why aren't you cleaning? Why aren't you cooking? Don't you know I got a lot on me? And Mary's down there going, Yeah, but I'm 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 kind of with my Savior. I need to be in his presence. The work can be waited on, you know. I know we think lunch is a big, important thing, but you know what? It actually could wait if it meant savoring some more moments with your Savior. What's the superior entity in the room? So may God bless us as we're going forward. And again, we got to talk about the Passover. We got to talk about the crucifixion. There's a lot ahead. It's a lot of stuff. I encourage you over the next several weeks to read. I mean, this is just three chapters. We've gone through like 20. Okay. So read the rest of 26, 27, 28. Go into Mark and Luke and John's account. Grab these last 24 hours so that when we talk about them, they're fresh in our mind. And then go and grab the Advent guide. Start that again. We're kind of we're dovetailing it, man. We're starting and we're ending all at the same time of year. It's a fantastic opportunity. So we'll continue on with this. May God bless us to do so.